Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is, if you purposely post more status updates on social media, you will reduce your feelings of loneliness even if you don't get any responses from your friends. Your feeling of loneliness is more strongly related to how many times you post rather than how much of a response you get. I guess that's a replacement for the bartender from years ago. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio, and I'm excited to introduce you today to Andrea Kuszewski. Andrea is a writer for Scientific American, Discover Magazine, Qualcomm Spark, Wired UK, and she writes a blog called The Rogue Neuron. She recently wrote a piece, actually a couple years ago, wrote a piece about how to increase your intelligence that is driving major amounts of traffic to, I think it's Scientific American, Andrea? Yes. Awesome. Yes. By the way, welcome to the show. I'm kind of getting ahead oh, of myself thank there. thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. You write about so many cool things that I don't really even know where to start interviewing you today. But one of the things that stood out was obviously increasing intelligence. How could we not talk about that? 
but you write about heroism and extreme altruism and morality and a bunch of other things that maybe don't line up necessarily with increased intelligence. So I want to talk about those things for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. First though, let's just talk, why do you study intelligence? Why did you write about this? Like what's the deal on increasing intelligence? Well, um, it's always been kind of a, a goal of mine to push myself to my highest potential, you know, to achieve as much as I can. I've always been one of those, you know, very self-starters, um, self-learners. I taught myself how to read at age three, not because I wanted to. It just it just happened to work out that way. Um, so I was reading at a very young age, and I was always taking in lots of information. So learning became like a way of life for me. Um, so as I got older and I started working as a therapist, um, with kids on the autism spectrum. Um, so kids with Asperger's were kind of my specialty. And these were kids that had a lot of potential, but there were a couple things going on where um, they were kind of impeding their progress in certain areas. So my, so my goal was to take these kids and how is raw potential and how can I get them to surpass all of these limits that are standing in the way of progress and getting them to push themselves beyond what anyone thought they could achieve. And so that's where I kind of started my whole career. And that's, that's kind of the main theme throughout all the work I do is trying to find a way to help people reach their highest potential in every way, intelligence, um, creativity, um, you know, fewer sociopaths, more heroes. We need that. You know, we need more of that heroic courage <laughs> in the world. So it really, it is, you know, that does tie in with, you know, reaching your highest potential. So when you think about humanity in general, um, where do we want to see humanity? What do we want it to look like in 100 years? And how do we get there? Um, and it doesn't have to be fancy with new technology. It can be as simple as, you know, being conscious of, of how you live your life and choosing a path that is going to get you to the place where you want to be and doing it deliberately. That's some pretty big words. So <laughs> we need a sociopath reduction strategy? Is, is... Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. I, I fully concur with that. I've never heard it put that way. Uh, and it, it's a part of why I write the Bulletproof Executive too, in that mm -hmm. I believe when people's brains are turned on all the way, they do less mean stuff and the world's a nicer place. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have anything more specific about making less sociopaths? Well, it's a complicated subject and it's one that um, I'm currently working on right now. That's my main area of research. Um, so looking at um, sociopaths right now, um, we look at what, they were, what were they like as children and can we identify people that are going to be future sociopaths? What are the traits that they have? What are the deficits? You know, why do they go down this path of, you know, destruction of the entire world, you know, for their own oh, benefit? You mean like, yeah. like a propensity to study political science or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> funny you say that, but, um, you know, I do have a theory about presidents. But anyway, in any case, um, yeah, so when you look at um, what are the traits that they have, and people seem to think that sociopaths, they have some kind of a, like a mutation. There's something wrong with them that um, something happened that made them evil. And really, it's, not, it's, it's more of an adaptation. So they have the traits that they have, and they have the inability to handle the world around them with what they're given. So they have poor emotion regulation. They have, um, they have very low exhibited empathy. It's not that they have an inability to empathize with people. They can. It's just that it's so intense for them. They don't know how to handle that um, appropriately. So what they end up doing is just like shoving all that off to the side. So, I mean, pe everyone experiences this to some degree. So it's kind of like a spectrum of sociopathic traits, you know? So um, like if you go through a bad breakup and you're really depressed, you know, and you're like, screw relationships, this is horrible. What you tend to do is you isolate yourself emotionally from things. You kind of like shove those emotions aside and you disconnect a little bit from people. And you kind of get that cold, callous demeanor for a short time as you're getting over this breakup. But then, you know, 
as you're healing, you reconnect with your emotions and everything, you know, works out normally. But with sociopaths, imagine doing that at a very young age. Maybe you go through some kind of trauma or it's, it's so debilitating that they have to just completely disconnect from those emotions because their ego is so fragile. Um, they, they can't handle connecting to them and still surviving. So really it's like a survival mechanism. Do you believe that there's any relationship between the sociopath, sociopath side of things and Asperger's or ADD? Are they related in any way? Well, they're related in the fact that there are some, you know, concurrent traits. So when people are often like, oh, cold, callous behavior, not showing empathy. So therefore, you know, people with Asperger's are sociopaths. Um, that's not true. So there's like a necessary and sufficient group of traits that must be present in order to qualify as a sociopath. So, you know, not showing empathy is only one of them. Um, another one of those is having a very, um, you know, low emotion regulation, which, you know, often Asperger's, they have the same thing. But another feature is a sociopath is always out for the presentation of themselves. They always, they put everything in the world through a filter of how am I going to benefit? Even when they do things that seem to be, you know, charity driven, or they're doing something that appears to benefit someone else, you know that in some way they are benefiting more, either through like social capital or... So so if you let someone with Asperger's when they're a kid read Ayn Rand, does that make them a sociopath? (laughs) It could steer them in that direction, yes. And I'm not saying that um, no people with Asperger's are sociopaths. I'm sure they overlap, you know, as most things do. You you Um, probably don't know this, but I had all the symptoms of Asperger's, although I was never diagnosed until my mid-20s, and I was diagnosed formally with ADD based on spec scans and behavioral studies and things like that. So I'm sort of asking these things, and for anyone listening who doesn't know that, I I know a little about emotional regulation and hacking the brain to make the brain turn fully on because you actually can handle all those inputs, including emotional and environmental sounds and all those things um, after you've basically upgraded your performance in many different levels. So I'm, I'm not making fun of or saying that people on the spectrum have anything uh, uh, negative or sociopathic about them, but it, it's very interesting to hear how you explain the overlap there because it's true. If you can't regulate your emotions or you don't know how to do it or you don't have the energy in your cells to do it and you also have just a hard time dealing with all of that, all of a sudden, then if you get that push in the direction of do everything for yourself, you may not understand that you're impacting others in a harmful way. So, right. Yeah. Very, very well said. Thank you for uh, for walking through that. I know that's a little yeah. controversial territory. And uh, well, turning that stuff off is important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so ex-altruism, you know, extreme altruism, what I'm looking at is the relationship between that and soci- you know, sociopathy. And so they are actually very similar if you look at, the exhibited traits, wow. you know, when you're looking at the whistleblower type of personality, um, Edward Snowden, people, he's a classic example, you know, some people look at him and say he's a traitor, sociopath, look what he's doing, you know, releasing government secrets. But if you look at what's the motivation behind his behavior, what is driving him to do that? It's his inability to, to see injustice and not be able to do anything about it. You know, he's willing to sacrifice his, possibly his own life, his own well-being. He pretty much scrapped his career. He's in hiding. Why? Because it's for the greater good. And that's the difference is that they, they exhibit a lot of the same behaviors, but the drives are different. You know, external preservation versus internal for the sociopath. When will I be able to read some of your work about this? When will our listeners be able to? Because this is going to be fascinating <laughs> and very topical. Um, well, I have written um, an introduction to this topic um, for Scientific American. Okay. It's on their guest blog um, from last year. So you can find that um, by looking up. You can just Google it. Um, it's Walking the Line Between Good and Evil. But that is actually a book that I'm planning right now, 
And I am laying out the framework for that. So that is going to be for the next year of my life. That's going to be my major topic. Um, that I'm highly interested in talking about. So um, you will be hearing much more of that in the future. When your book is ready to come out, I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more specifically about that stuff. But on this show, let's switch gears and talk about some more things about intelligence and mental performance, Mm -hmm. because I know you've got a lot to offer there and all the Bulletproof listeners are super, super into that. Mm -hmm. All right, first thing. In 2009, a study suggested that after short interactions with women, men have lower mental performance. (laughs) Any thoughts on that? Because I'm feeling kind of dumb right now. (laughs) You know, it's not surprising um, because mental performance, partially it's about attention allocation, concentration, motivation. So when you have things that are competing for not only attention, but competing for your motivation, um, yeah, you're not going to be performing as well. Um, Another factor is um, any kind of emotional stimulation is going to interfere with your cognitive pathway. So when you have an influx of, um, and it can be used in many different ways, so extreme physical exercise to the point where um, you can't even think straight anymore, you know, running a marathon or, no, I'm not talking about just a slow jog, I'm talking about hitting that point where you hit acute exercise. Like um, and also, maybe? Yeah. Okay. And that's actually, um, that's that brings up another talk about training. You know, how do you train for that? How do you train to um, endure these kinds of, things that would normally impede learning and then surpass that and still learn in spite of. And if you're able to do that, that's only going to make you, um, you know, bring you to a higher ability. Uh, so if you think about emotional trauma, you know, you have a fight with your spouse and then you have to sit down and take a physics exam, you know, how well are you going to do on that? Probably not as good as you would otherwise. Cause what happens is that emotional, that emotional stimulation, it literally blocks off the cognitive pathway and um, you aren't able to use your, your prefrontal cortex like you would normally. So when you think about, Males in front of females, what's happening? Oh, emotional reaction. And that's, that's going to diminish that capacity somewhat. So, so I, I use heart rate variability training with my executive performance coaching clients and just with myself in mm-hmm. order to sort of teach myself to turn off the fight or flight response. Yeah. Now, the response, though, that guys get around women, well, sometimes it's fight or flight, especially if you know, you're not used to dating. But mm-hmm. let's assume that you're comfortable around women and you still experience that. Is that sort of different than just an, an emotional fight or flight? Is this like, you know, I, I'm happy to be around people or are we primarily dealing with the sympathetic nervous system here? Yeah, it's, I don't think that would be the fight or flight then. That's just more of attention allocation. You okay. know, you just can't stop yourself from <laughs> focusing so much on that. You it's have to stop just looking competing at those stimuli. Too much work. Yeah, it's like <laughs> multitasking. So okay. if you're trying to multitask, you're not going to be performing as well. You know, okay. so if I'm doing research or I'm writing, I try to eliminate as many external stimuli as I can, you know, visual, I try to be somewhere by myself, auditory block off as many, you know, I try to reduce everything down the lowest common denominator so that um, I I don't have as many things competing for my attention. All right. I love that you're talking about the tricks that you use. What are the other Mm -hmm. things you do to hack your own brain to increase your intelligence? Well, um, one thing, well, there's five things. Uh, the article that I wrote was the five, basically five principles of increasing intelligence. And they aren't just things like, you know, eat better food and get more sleep. I mean, these are actually ways of how I approach life. And so I actually do practice what I preach. So all of these five things are things that I do on a regular basis. And I've been doing them for a very long time. And when I would teach um, my clients with Asperger's, you know, how to improve their performance, I use the same principles for them. So it's really kind of a way of looking at life. Um, so the first one is seeking novelty, which is, you know, I'm in the field of psychology, generally cognitive neuroscience, but I'm constantly reading about philosophy and physics and 
many, many other fields, both in how they relate to mine and how they don't relate to mine, you know, because there's expanding your horizons is in looking at um, fields that are, that are very different from your own. It, it's, it helps with um, just in general, increasing the number of synapses in your brain. You think about that. And the more connections you have, the more they build on each other and you're just going to increase your performance generally. So seeking novelty is a big one. Um, and incidentally, of the big five personality traits, um, that is one of the only areas that actually correlates with intelligence is, you know, that, that novelty seeking, that openness to experience is one of the only traits that actually does correlate with, with higher intelligence for a good reason. <laughs> okay, so, um, and the second one is um, challenging myself. So once I learn how to do something, once I master a skill, once I get to the point where I'm fluent at it, I immediately move on to the next challenging activity. So when people do these, um, I'm pretty tough on brain training games. You know, I'm pretty hard be. on them. I, I pretty much say, you know, the only thing brain training games make you better at is brain training games. <laughs> um, if you do the same one over and over. Because once you learn how to do something, it's no longer challenging. So our, our brains are not, are not built for being smarter. They're built for efficiency and survival. And, and for so avoiding you, pain, right? Yeah. So what, how do you do that? You, your brain has learned to adapt to the environment so that um, it wants to survive. It's not going to be expending energy if it doesn't have to. So it, it gets like lazy and it looks for ways to be efficient and it finds efficiency very quickly. And so once you're aware of this, you kind of like you're hacking your own efficiency in a way that, you know, you want to prevent that efficiency from happening. As soon as you get to the point where you notice you're getting fluent, you need to bump it right back up again and start challenging yourself again. Is there, okay, this is going to sound masochistic, but it's not, it's mm -hmm. a legitimate scientific question. <laughs> Should I wire my brain training game up to an electric shocking dog collar <laughs> so that instead of being, oh, look, I got a higher score, that I'm actually av avoiding pain because the brain's wiring to avoid pain is larger than it's a, you know, the little dopamine spike you get from getting an extra star on your brain training game? Uh, well, then you're kind of messing around with, you know, um, <laughs> classical conditioning and all that stuff, too. Um, you don't want to start associating um, learning uh, with discomfort and pain. That's um, a fair point. But yeah, but as far as the discomfort, you bring up a good point, though, is that, you know, learning is not easy. It shouldn't be easy. Yeah. It can be fun. It should be rewarding, but it should not be easy. It's really difficult. So I always have people that are like, oh, give me the quick, like, give me the oh, couple things I need to do. Should I just take, wouldn't it be easier to just take nootropics rather than, you know, actually reading books and learning things? Yeah. And I'm like, well, it'd probably be easier. But I don't think you're actually going to get smarter just by doing that. It's um, not either or, though. A, like, no, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not knocking nootropics, but there's a way that they can be used yeah. um, to enhance. And, um, but popping a pill is not going to make you suddenly know physics if you've never studied it. It's just, it just yeah. doesn't work that way. Provigil um, followed by the view isn't probably going to change your life in a major way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very, yeah. very fair point. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, so do you take any smart drugs or cognitive enhancers? To be totally honest, and I've actually come out with this before, so it's not a big, huge deal, but I do have ADD in a ton of type, and I do take Adderall for that, um, but I have not taken any of the other nootropics. But for me, you know, people are like, oh, you're taking smart drugs, that's why you're so smart. It's like, well, no, it's actually um, more about managing dopamine and things oh, like yeah. that. Um, and it's a specific neurochemistry. Um, you know, my... my I, I try to explain ADD to people. No, I'm not hyperactive. So for me, it's just attention allocation. So if you think about a hallway with 100 doors 
And at any given point in time, a normal person, there's like 35 doors that are opening and closing and you're having to navigate your attention between all this information, you know? So for me, it's like having 85 doors open all the time. So there's just like stuff coming in from every direction and I'm having to, you know, fight between, do I pay attention to this or this or this? Cause there's just such a flood of information. And so when I think about hacking my own mental health, if I understand that this is what's going on, my goal is not to reduce the number of doors that are open. My goal is to be able to effectively manage all of that information. And so by, you know, managing my dopamine levels and norepinephrine and things like that, I'm actually able to benefit from having ADD because the information's there. I just need to find a way to organize it and make it work for me. And so one of the things when I talk about, you know, hacking your own mental health, um, when I have, when I see um, clients like with Asperger's or with ADHD or any kind of um, what we would call a disability, you know, like a mental disability, it's not, the goal should not be making them more normal. It should not be toning down their traits. The goal should be managing the high traits that they have to the point where it's effective. Now, obviously you might have to dial it down a little bit, but the goal should be keeping the traits as saturated and as high as possible while still being able to control it. So really the control is the big, is the big factor, not, not dialing it down to you know, more subdued. It's interesting you say that. Uh, in my work with, uh, with performance coaching, one of the areas of concern I have is around neurofeedback. And I've done a ton of neurofeedback, and I, I think it's one of the things that gave me the ability to maintain my own ADD skills, uh, mm-hmm. but to not, not have to deal with all of the things that I used to deal with on a regular basis cognitively. Uh, the ability to focus my attention as much or as little as I want, but to still be able to absorb way more information than the average person. Mm-hmm. I've been concerned that neurofeedback has the potential to take A students and make them into C students. It also takes F students and makes them into C students, but it, it creates an average brain if you do it the wrong way. You know, if, mm-hmm. you, if you train a brain to look like an average of a thousand brains, it may not be the direction we want to go. Do you have any thoughts on, on the risks or rewards of that sort of brain training? Um, I'm not as familiar with probably the kind that you're talking about, but I do believe that um, the, the way our education system is set up is so that they do want everyone to train into that middle category. Um, you know, the outliers are not really encouraged or nurtured. They're kind of put into, you know, here's the bell curve and here's the center. And this is where most people tend to thrive. And so since we, are, we need our, you know, school system to be efficient, we need standardized tests. In order to standardize things, you have to be able to throw a lot of, you know, a lot of information out there and be able to score quickly and, you know, get norms and all this other stuff. So what ends up happening is the people that are in the tails of the distribution kind of get left out of that. You know, they try to squeeze everyone into that middle and the really exceptional people are not getting the kind of environment that they should. So that sort of relates to what you're saying. Um, okay. So what other technologies do you use then? You're not using neurofeedback. Um, mm-hmm. You take uh, Adderall. Um, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that you haven't tried Provigil because it has a dopamine effect. Um, Adderall made me tweet, I have heard by that. the way. Uh, yeah, yeah, Adderall, I was like, don't touch my skin. Uh, so that didn't yeah. really make me so happy. But uh, yeah, it, it might be. Yeah, that's the thing with, with Adderall is everyone thinks, oh, you take it, you're going to be smarter. Well, it doesn't work that way for everybody. Um, if you have any kind of anxiety disorder or any kind of sensitivity to stimulants, it's, it's really not going to work for you. You're going to get paranoid and anxious. Um, and it's actually going to not have the effect that, um, that you want. Um, for me, it's like I've never, I've never gotten the jitters from caffeine ever. Like no matter how much I drink, no matter, no matter how much coffee I ever had, um, 
I just, I don't get that buzz from coffee like some people do. Um, I feel more alert, definitely. Um, but that's just my neurochemistry. So, you know, Adderall works for me. It doesn't, it doesn't give me that, you know, central nervous system problems like some people get. Now you take it with Bulletproof coffee, right? I have taken Bulletproof coffee. Okay. <laughs> yes. And Adderall at the same time and, and you're still good oh, to go yeah. with that. Wow. Yeah. You're hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm generally, you know what, um, people, um, they characterize me as intense, but I'm very mellow as far as like my temperament. You know, I'm not one of those hyper, um, bouncing off the walls kinds of people. So, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make me, um, get that high feeling like maybe other people would with sensitivities to that. Cool. Yeah. You don't come across, I'm watching on video, people can see us on YouTube, but most people <laughs> listen to this when they're driving, right? Yeah. So yeah, you don't come across as like super hyper, like, you know, the, the dark makeup and no, I'm just kidding. You, you don't have vampire no, the people makeup are on. Like, <laughs> you know, the people that are always so hyper, I'm always just like, oh my God, it just looks so exhausting <laughs> to be in that, that intense all the time. Although, um, you know, to each his own, right? <laughs> so for your neurochemistry, even though you're on basically legal meth, it mm-hmm. doesn't, uh, it doesn't affect you in that way because like we're all different, uh, right. which is kind of an important thing. When it comes to things like nootropics, what do you think about what, what age should people be looking at these things? Like, is it ethical to use nootropics when you're 12, if you don't have a condition like ADD or Asperger's or eight or 16, like what, what's the age? Well, the problem with screwing around with your brain like that is that it isn't fully formed until <laughs> you're in your 20s. Um, I think what I've last heard was like 25 is when your prefrontal cortex is finally starting to become fully developed. So when you think about um, these kinds of heavy-duty meds that are they're really kind of really messing around with those levels, and some of the some of the changes could be permanent. Yeah. You know, we don't know yet. I mean, they haven't been around long enough to really know. Um, as far as ADD meds, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely on board with children being prescribed them. Um, I've worked with kids um, when they were not on them and then worked with them once they started a medication. And let me tell you, it was like night and day. Like the parents were crying. They couldn't believe what a difference it made in this child's ability to actually learn information and take in information rather than, you know, um, too much going on for them to handle. So for them, it worked. Um, and not every child that's diagnosed with ADD has ADD. Um, hyperactivity is not the defining feature. Everyone thinks hyperactivity is a defining feature and it is not. It's attention allocation. Some people also have hyperactivity as an additional trait. It's their way of like, um, it's like an effect of having ADD. It's one of the side effects for them is the hyperactivity. Um, but not everyone gets that. So when you see kids that are hyperactive, sometimes they're just hyperactive. <laughs> sometimes they're just ill-behaved or they don't care or they've learned that behavior, whatever. Um, so not every child that's hyperactive is going gonna, is gonna to do well on ADD medication. So that is an important thing to remember. So I am pro, pro drugs for that for kids, but not everyone that's being diagnosed with it, I think, has the disorder. And that's actually doing a disservice to those kids who actually do have it and need it. Because then they end up getting that stigma of, you know, you're just drugging your kid in order to get them to sit still or getting them to, you know, have higher grades. Um, so as far as that, um, that's my opinion on that. As far as the, the other nootropics, like, I would, honestly, I wouldn't be prescribing them to children before their late teens at the very earliest, early 20s. Um, I couldn't even imagine seeing a child <laughs> 
yeah. on the, the anti-narcolepsy drugs. Um, I just, I, I have no idea what that would do to them, but it can't be good. <laughs> I, I worry about that because I'm probably the biggest cheerleader for ProVigil there is, even mm-hmm. for people who aren't on the spectrum or you know dealing with a specific cognitive dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I get the question a lot in my forums. I'm like, guys, you, your PFC, your prefrontal cortex, isn't formed until at least 23. Like the earliest mm-hmm. you should even think about it is that age. So if you're in high school, there are lots of high school students who, you know, illegally and unwisely you know, borrow ADD from their friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, that has one set of effects, but at least we kind of know that. But some of these other things, yeah. just don't mess around with it. Like, let it grow the right way and then start messing around with it. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a message that anyone should who's listening to this, uh, who's in that age group, really should listen to. Uh, yeah. Like be Wait patient. until your 20s. <laughs> yes. Wait until your 20s. Uh, really, because, I mean, we don't know what it's going to be doing to you. But we do know that the prefrontal cortex is not fully formed and not fully matured until your 20s. So it's like, a, you know, there's reasons why certain medications you can't give to children under 3 or children under 12. I mean, there's there's reasons why they have those warnings. Because those, in those cases, we know that those, that those chemicals are going to be interfering with brain development under a certain age because we know that through clinical trials. Um, these other things are still so new that we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we do know that um, they have an effect on the prefrontal cortex, and we know it's not fully formed yet, so why mess with that at this point when do you need <laughs> the anti-narcolepsy as a high school student? No, you don't need it. Um, that's, that's for um, increased performance. And that's where, you know what, buck up. <laughs> Learning is difficult. <laughs> Put it forth the effort. And no, don't mess with your brain at that point. It's funny that, that people are willing to, you know, go out and pump iron. And they're willing mm-hmm. to, to deal with physical pain. But mm-hmm. stimulating the brain to change is just as painful to the brain as it is to lift something to, to your tolerance with your, your muscles. Oh, absolutely. So, and like you said, you adapt pretty quickly with the brain. Is there something that that people should do, whether they're you know adults or or teenagers, in order to to grow their IQ, uh, like a very specific either training methods or nutritional things? Like what what are the things we can do if we don't want to go down the smart drug path? Well, I mean, one of the simplest things you can do is constantly pushing yourself beyond what you think is possible, so beyond your comfort zone. You know, people think that the goal is for things to be easy. And that's actually the opposite is true. The goal should be for things to be difficult. Not so hard that it's impossible, but just hard enough that you don't think you can accomplish it, but you can. So you want to put your goals just past the point that you think you can achieve it. And when you do that, um, it, it triggers dopamine. You're more motivated. It has this positive feedback loop. And then you're constantly growing your cognitive ability. So um, it's not pleasant. It's actually painful. <laughs> so what I like to tell people is that... Um, you know, you should learn to fetishize the pain of struggling through learning something new. And that really is the sweet spot. When it's difficult and you're struggling and you're kind of in this mild discomfort all the time, then you know you're really onto something and then you're in the sweet spot. So you've got to come to recognize the pain of learning and liking it and accepting that. Here's a statistic that might, uh, might interest you. I tend to coach people who are kind of at the top of their career, CEOs and hedge fund traders and and people, entrepreneurs, just people who are really just wanting more focus and more attention. And mm-hmm. I recommend dual in-back training, which is uh, a free you know, open source kind of software. I, I know you've written about it and you've talked about it mm-hmm. before. The, the one that's proven most to stimulate your brain. Yep. Most of them don't finish it. And I just tell them 20 minutes a day for 20 days. You know, and anyone could do this. You know, your 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 kids in high school could do it. 
Mm-hmm. In my own experience with that thing, I, f- I felt like such a failure because it was so hard. <laughs> I couldn't remember this thing from just two points back. And like, really, it, it's such a simple thing. But because your brain isn't wired to do two things at once <laughs> like that, I find that even amongst, you know, the, the kind of these, I, I guess they would object to being called elite people, but people who are seen as, you know, elite thought leaders, you know, mm-hmm. ultra successful people, uh, they don't want to do it either because of that brain pain where you just, it's internalized not as like sweat, but it's internalized as like I suck. How do you yeah. get around the I suck, I'm a failure, I'm no good when it's <laughs> push my brain? How do people navigate that? Well, that's where the one factor that everyone forgets about is motivation. And the thing about the dual NBAC test, you know, the very first study that came out that actually showed a transfer of um, training on working memory tasks in the dual NBAC and actually transferring that to a gain in intelligence in, in a generalized um, intelligence test that came out in 2008. Um, and they tried to replicate that. So other people were training them the dual end back and trying to get that transfer of the increase in intelligence. And some people were successful and some weren't. And they're like, oh, look, we, not everyone can replicate it. So therefore, it's not, you know, not looking at it. So what I, I looked at it and I found that the, the people that were able to replicate those results were the people that did the dual end back training, but it was framed in like a video game or it was framed in an activity that was it was the dual end back and it was still training those working memory tests, but it was done in a way that was motivating for the people taking it. And they found that those who rated it as more motivating to engage in, so after they finished these tests, then they interviewed them and said, how do you feel about it? Was it hard? Was it difficult? And so people that rated it both as difficult and enjoyable had the highest increase in their cognitive ability at the end of that. So it has to not only be difficult, but you should be enjoying it. So that's where I say you need to fetishize that pain. You need to find yourself, you know, that's where the seeking novelty comes in. That's where, um, you know, doing new activities because novelty, we like novelty. That's always fun anyway, because it's something new. You're not bored with it. You know, who wants to sit down and you say, if, if you do 12 pages of long division every single night, you'll be able to raise your IQ by two points. And someone's oh, totally easy. I'll just do that every night. You're not going to do it for more than a couple nights because who the hell wants to, I wouldn't want to, right. you know, but if you say, um, do these series of games and it's always something different and it's fun, you are more likely to do that. Or if it's framed in terms of um, daily activities. So all of these things that I do to, to make myself smarter, it's not just I sit down and play a game, I sit down and do a task, but it's what is the dual end back doing? Okay, it's, it's you have stimuli that are competing for attention. You're having to hold things in working memory while looking for new stimuli while, you know, weeding out the ones that are, you know, signal from noise and all this stuff. So that's what it's actually doing fundamentally. So how do you take that concept and apply it to everyday activities? You know, um, you know, so I say when I want to concentrate, I, I reduce all the stimuli down to, you know, just me and my computer or what I'm thinking. But what if I actually, what if my goal now is to, you know, train my brain a little bit, maybe I'll introduce, I'll maybe I'll work in a coffee shop and force myself to do the same kind of work you know, with stimuli around me that's competing for my attention, that kind of thing. So I am still doing kind of the same activity, but in a different environment, and it's a natural environment. So if you push yourself to engage in activities that mimic the same kinds of effects that you get from the dual end back, um, I, you're more likely to follow through on that. There's something to be said for novelty, and there's also kind of changes in the brain structure that can happen. You mentioned, I think on Google Plus a while back, something about the physical evidence of structural brain differences from people who wake up early versus people who stay up late. 
<laughs> so, all right, we're going to we're talking about pushing the brain and training the brain and doing yeah. uncomfortable things. All right, I'm a night owl. I, I studied computer science, which means like I, yeah. I, I literally would stay up till three or four a.m. every night if I let myself and be quite happy that way. I oh, just, I've been in that. Yeah, <laughs> I just sleep in for a long time. I have kids, so that's not yeah. how I not how I roll. I just sleep less. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay, well, number one, do you wake up early or do you stay up late? Oh, I'm I'm a night owl. Well, Definitely. you have ADD. I would have bet that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and okay. uh, yeah, and my boyfriend's a programmer, so you know, in this household, it's everyone. It's like going to bed at four, waking up at eleven, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that you know, it just um, it works best for me. That's just when I when I work best. But um, you know, for a time, I, I did have a job where I had to get up at like five o'clock every morning, and I had to be at work from nine to five, and then you know, I had to force myself to be on during those hours. And that was really difficult. Um, I was not performing optimally. (laughs) Was it good good for your brain to learn to do that or was it just painful? In that case, I think it was painful. It was too much of a shock. (laughs) So the goal is to kind of like do it so that it's not impossible. And then you struggle, struggle, but can never get there. Um, You want to like, you know, put the life raft just past your fingertips. And then, okay, then you get it. And then you push it back a little more and then you get it. Um, So completely, like I went from, going to bed at 4 a.m. to waking up at 5. And that was just, that was, that was really difficult. And I don't think I benefited from that. Um, if I had extended it an hour each night for like over a period of two weeks, yeah, that probably would have been better. It's a little more um, natural, like, like treating jet lag, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I went and I taught myself to wake up at 5 or 5.30 every morning for about two years. I'd wake up and I'd like meditate for an hour because I figured out that an hour of meditation replaced two hours of sleep. So as mm-hmm. long as I was getting a, a certain window of sleep, I was able to save time that way. But it still took discipline, and, and that's not my preferred wake-up time today. But it, the idea that I could teach my brain to do that and still you know, be on during the day was mm-hmm. kind of amazing. So I, I was wondering if you'd come across research or in your own life had played around with brain plasticity and wake-up time. and. I haven't seen anything of that specifically, okay. but the way I look at it, you know, you got to choose your battles here. <laughs> oh yeah. There are plenty of there are plenty of areas in my life where I can challenge myself and push myself. Uh, sleeping is one of those things where I just really don't want to mess around with it. Um, I really love sleeping. It's like I would fantasize about napping when I was in college, <laughs> um, I just, but I also get insomnia, so it's kind of like a catch twenty two there. Um, so with my with my sleeping, I don't like to mess around with that too much. But um, how much do you sleep? Uh, usually between six and seven hours a night normally. Um, okay. I always want to get more sleep, but sometimes it's not possible. It's not possible so. because you just wake up or it's not possible because you have stuff to do? Uh, both. Usually I have a hard time falling asleep. So oftentimes I'll just be laying there awake and laying there awake. So then I'm like, oh, well, I'll just do some work while I'm, since I'm awake. Well, then that stimulates my brain even more. And then I can't fall asleep because I'm thinking about all the stuff I'm working on and it just perpetuates into this negative feedback loop. So, um, so I struggle with falling asleep and then I, I end up automatically waking up at a certain time every day. Um, so how much sleep I get depends on how, how successful I am at actually falling asleep. Got it. So it's a going to sleep thing. It, mm-hmm. It's funny how much uh, of an impact I, uh, I found that in my own life, there was multiple sleep things that I managed to overcome with training, breathing, or uh, amino acids and neurotransmitter modulation and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And when I deal with like super high performance people, same thing, either they have a hard time going to sleep because mm-hmm. you know, they're so focused on the stuff they're doing, they like it or they're worried about it mm-hmm. and they just, they keep running in their mind or they wake up in the middle of the night thinking about stuff and they can't go back to sleep. So it's always like trouble going to sleep or that I wake up and I'm just laying in bed for hours and hours. And mm-hmm. each of them has, I think, different 
behavioral roots in the way they learn to do that, the reason they're doing it, and sometimes different biochemical roots that can be as varied as like food versus, you know, stress levels and things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about food for a minute, food and sleep mm-hmm. and just food and what it does for or doesn't do for growing IQ. Like how important is food for your brain? And what are the recommendations that you think are most important for keeping brains strong? Well, food is important, and I'm not a nutritionist, so I can't give too much specific information. Um, but I was at one point, um, back in the early 2000s, um, competitive weight training was my thing. And so I was on a diet where I was eating you know, very lean protein, um, complex carbohydrates, certain amount of fats, and I was very very militant about my eating six small meals a day, um, no, you know, no processed sugar, all this stuff. And I had the easiest time sleeping and waking. I was like, I never slept better my whole life is when I was, but, and I was physically exhausting myself in the gym too. And I still just had the most restful sleep. I could wake up at five, you know, um, I was learning better, but what I found is that if I, if I'm eating a lot of sugar, or if I'm not paying attention to how much protein I'm eating, or if my, if my diet gets off track, I will start to feel sluggish and I can't concentrate. It ruins my concentration. It ruins my ability to learn new things. And so I remember, um, I, because I'm aware of this now, if I have to pull an all-nighter or I know that I have some really important stuff going on that I need to really focus on, I will make sure that one of my top priorities is my diet, making sure that I'm eating regular meals, cutting out the sugar, cutting out the things, you know, no white bread or flour or anything like that. Um, and I do this because I know that that's going to help my brain function at the optimal level. Are and you, when I do pay attention to that, it doesn't make a difference. Are you gluten-free? I'm not, no. Wow. So you have ADD <laughs> and you know food affects you. Have you tried going like hardcore gluten-free for a little while to see what happened? You know what? I haven't because, um, you know, I've read some evidence about how it helps. Um, some of my clients years ago were on gluten-free diets and I remember I would track their behavior and I collected data on mm-hmm. um, their ability to learn gluten-free, not gluten-free. And, and for me, I didn't really see an effect with them. Um, so I guess my experience with watching that, it didn't have a real significant effect. So I, I never really felt compelled to try it myself, but who knows? Got it. Do you subscribe to the gluteomorphin uh, sort of dietary breakdown where gluten turns into an opiate-like substance in the gut that can affect the brain? Have, have you come across um, that? Or? I have come across that. I guess my experience isn't enough that I can really okay, got it. comment on that fully. And I know um, you're not a nutritionist either, so I don't want to you know, yeah, go outside. Yeah, know. but so the, the biggest thing for me was um, really cutting out sugar is, is okay. the biggest benefit that I've noticed. So. And, and is that, do you think, because of cortisol? Like sugar raises cortisol and makes that's a yeah, stress hormone? I'm, yeah, I'm sure that has to do with that. Okay. And um, and I'm also very sensitive to um, blood sugar crashes too. So I notice that if I keep keep my blood sugar as steady as possible, then I'm able to function at my best too. So if, if my blood sugar gets too low, you know, I, I get really grumpy. <laughs> it's yeah. like I want to kill somebody. Um, so I, I try to maintain the even blood sugar levels at all times. So um, any kind of really high high sugar content foods kind of ruins that for me. What about uh, intermittent fasting, either bulletproof intermittent fasting or not? Um, have you played around with that? Does it work? And you know, what do, you th- do you have any thoughts on it and mental productivity? Yeah, you know, I've heard a lot of people doing the, the fasting. Um, I've tried it myself, and I've found that I cannot, I cannot function <laughs> by fasting, just, just me personally. And I'm sure that has more to do with just my own, my own neurochemistry than um, whether or not fasting works for other people. 
Um, I have friends that do it on a regular basis and it seems to work for them. Um, I wish it would work for me. Um, um, but I find that in, for my, for my peak performance, um, I need to, I need to keep a steady intake of food at some level. Um, the absolute fasting is, is difficult. It's hard for me to concentrate. I found with uh, with my client base, who are not necessarily normal people, <laughs> um, <laughs> that a few of them do normal like intermittent fasting. But even then, people are in good shape and all. They start to crash a little bit around lunchtime, and they mm-hmm. get a little cold and distracted and cranky, and they still have a few hours before they're going to eat. So when they switch to eating only fat in the morning, like you do with a bulletproof intermittent fast, right. they maintain the energy level because the calories are there, but the body still doesn't turn on any of the sugar metabolism or protein metabolism types of things. Right, because um, the fat takes longer to metabolize, so it stays in there longer. Yeah, and so for me, I mean, I can do, now that my I'm where I am metabolically, I can handle that like a, a full-on fast, um, but mm-hmm. I'm still more comfortable and just more focused if I have you know an ounce or two or more of fat in the morning, and I still seem to get the benefits of the fast. Mm-hmm. How about things like, uh, like alpha brain, uh, things that raise acetylcholine? Have you played around with those at all? No, I have not. Okay, cool. So yeah. I don't want to get you on like a long <laughs> list of, of different smart drugs to, to ask you about. Um, um, we've talked about yeah, the limb back as, training. Go ahead. Yeah, as far as like um, the smart drugs, I mm-hmm. just want to emphasize the point that because so many people ask me about nootropics, so many people, um, because my area of, you know, in mm-hmm. grad school, my focus was, in, was intelligence and um, the fact that you could increase it. Um, so when people ask me about taking nootropics, do they work? Can I just, well, you know, these principles that you're giving me to get smarter, they're really difficult and they take time. Well, can I just take smart drugs instead? Want to be easier? <laughs> you know, and I say, well, it will be easier, but you probably are not going to benefit. So when you, when you look at um, what they actually do, it's like the, these drugs, they, they prime your brain for learning. They prime your brain in order to make connections, make those synapses, and actually grow your cognitive ability. It doesn't do it for you. It gets you all primed and ready for it, like having all the best gear, you know, having all the best equipment, you know, getting a good night's sleep, all of these things. You got everything working for you, and then you set out to learn new things. And I really, that's, I see the function of the nootropics. So it's getting in your brain in the optimal state for learning. So you can't pop a pill and then expect to know particle physics if you've never studied it. You know, it will make you better able to learn that subject once you put forth the really difficult effort to learn that material, but it's not going to magically do it for you. You know, it's not magic, it's science. So it's funny to me that we as a society believe it's okay to take creatine and glutamine before you go lift heavy things in order to increase your training efficiency, but we don't do the same thing before we sit down in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's where I I think it's okay. I'm not anti-neutropics, but you, you can't expect it to all, all work for you. It, yeah. You know, like taking a weight loss drug, they're like, if I just take a pill, the pounds are going to melt off me. Well, not really. What it's going to do is it's going to make your cardio more efficient, maybe, or your workout more intense. You know, it's, but you actually have to work your muscles. You can't just sit there and expect your muscles to magically grow, but they will grow better if you do take creatine. You know, so people need to kind of like reframe how they're thinking about nootropics. It's not an, um, an exchange. It's not instead of. It's in addition to. Uh, that is so well said, and uh, you've inspired me to write something about that on, on oh, my good. blog. Hey. So <laughs> I'll link it back to you when I, I do that because okay. it, it's such an important point. And 
people say, oh, you're cheating or you're doping. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'm cheating or I'm doping. Of course, I told you what I was doing and it wasn't against the rules. So yeah, I, right. I'm doing it. But if I'm doping and then I don't go into the race, like who cares, right? It, I, mm-hmm. it just, you didn't achieve that goal. So all right, you've definitely inspired me to, to help share that message in writing. Mm-hmm. Now there's a question, Andrew, that I've asked every guest on the show uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the show because we're running up on our 45-minute limit. And it's based on your entire life, not just the work you're doing or the research you've done. What are the top three recommendations you have for people to help them perform better, to, basically to kick more ass? So it, like, don't stick just to your research. It could be you know, <laughs> have good parents, whatever it is. But, you know. Oh, uh, in life? Yeah, share some wisdom with us. Okay. Um, one major thing is don't listen to the naysayers. Um, one of my very good friends, Scott Barry Kaufman, just wrote a book called Ungifted, and it's, it's intelligence redefined. And it's basically saying that, um, you know, people are always telling you that you have what you're given with. You have your genetics, you have your family socioeconomic status, whatever you're given to, and that's what you have to work with. And that's, you know, that's pretty much determining where you're going to go in life. And so what ends up happening is people get this attitude where, well, I came from a poor family, or I was labeled as special needs, or I was, you know, told this and that, and this is where I'm at right now. And so they give up on setting these high goals for themselves, and they believe that they can't achieve these things that they seem that are impossible. And I say that, you know, you can achieve almost anything that you set out to do. I'm not saying it's 100%, because I will never be the next Michael Jordan, and I know that. But I can certainly become a hell of a lot better at sports if I set goals for myself and I put it out there. So really not, not setting um, limits on yourself. So really um, not seeing yourself as, you know, dealing with whatever you've been dealt with in life. Think of it as what is your potential? What could you do? What is possible? You know, daring to dream that impossible dream. And it sounds so cheesy, but really, um, if you don't ever set high goals for yourself, things that seem impossible, you will never, ever reach them. So that's the biggest thing is really kind of setting high goals and not giving into limitations. That's the first one. Um, another thing, oh boy, um, constantly pushing yourself <laughs> with learning um, and not sticking just within your field. Seeking novelty is such a big thing. So I'm a novelty junkie. You know, it's impossible for me to have one full-time job where I'm only doing one thing. I've tried it multiple times. I can't do it. <laughs> you know, I have to always be doing multiple things and that's what makes me happy. But through doing that is I feel like I have such a richer life um, because I'm reaching out and expanding my horizons in so many different fields. So um, being multidisciplinary, I think is become a, it's going to become a bigger and bigger trend in the years to come. So constantly thinking in that direction rather than narrowing to such a small area of study, I think always thinking multidisciplinary um, is a good thing. So, did you want another? That was two. Another one. I think so. Two. We got one more in there. Life goal. One of the eighty-five doors that's open. Just pick that one. Okay. <laughs> um, you know what? Considering my um, my research on heroism and exalterism, sociopathy, I guess um, having the courage to stand up and do something, even if you're the only one doing it. So it's really difficult to stand up for what you think is right. It's difficult to be the only person when everyone else is kind of, you know, telling you that you're wrong. But if you, if you believe in yourself and you believe in what your cause is, having the courage to stand up for that. Because if you are right, in time, people will eventually come over to your side. But that intermittent time between when you first step out and everyone else starts getting on board with their idea, it's a very difficult time period. And a lot of people, they kind of fail during that because it's hard. So just having the courage to stick it out 
and have faith that um, if you're on the right path, other people will join you eventually. So being courageous. What an awesome list. I appreciate you coming <laughs> up with those. And I've seen a lot of people squirm <laughs> trying to think of those on the spot. But that's uh-huh. that's one of the reasons that people come up with you know, creative, amazing answers. I'm always mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at how few repeat answers come through even after I think we're nearing 70 or so podcasts. Wow. Um, just that people have their, they've walked their own path. So thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, I, I really like those answers. Now, there's another question for you. Where can people find out more about your work? Uh, where can they sign up to get notice of your new book and things like that? Where should we go to find you? Okay. Well, my personal website is in state of construction right now. But if you go to my Google Plus profile, so if you just, um, Look for me. I don't know if you can link that up in when yeah, you place this on the web. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes, but, and when we release this, we'll put links to everything you mentioned here. Okay. Yeah, so if you go to my Google Plus profile, you can find links there to my blog, to all the work I've written. There's links to everything on there, and um, I will be linking up my new blog to that profile. So looking for me on the Google will help you find everything that you need. All right. Mm-hmm. Andrea Kuchevsky, thank you so much for taking time to talk about such a wide, diverse number of topics. I had a great time with you today. Oh, you're very welcome. I had a great time too. Thank you so much for having me. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.